Hello, welcome to Bible Marathon and it's dinner time. The word of God we believe is the best sustenance for the spirit, which is why we are taking our time to study and dine on the word of God. So, join us at the table for word dinner. All right, so we are definitely, you know, we've been building on the script study of the scriptures for a while now. You know, we've studied it in a few epistles, one one account. Um, and now we are in the book of Hebrews, which is one of my favorite books in, in the scriptures, by the way. Um, and Hebrews has just a different approach to you know it's its audience, first of all. And then we discussed how the authorship of the book of Hebrews is not really known. People say it's Paul. Some people say it's, you know, different sets of, there's so many categories of people that they put into this box. Um, but we have evidence for um, the fact that it might not be Paul based on how he writes, as well as the fact that it could, some people still say it could be Paul, just that it did not start with a greeting. Well, but but the point is we can validate and verify very strongly with a lot of evidence that this text was inspired and it's it's supposed to be in the canon of scripture, okay? And that this book that was written, you know, in the early, the first century church, basically, you know, has so much to say, but had so much to say back then and still has so much to say to us today. All right, so I really want us to pay attention to everything. And um, if you have any questions, please ask. Don't hold back. We started like this last week. All right. So we started with this text. Um, I would like someone to read this. It's on the screen already. But I would like someone to read this for us. God, who has done sundry times and in diverse manners, speaking times passed on to the fathers by prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and withholding all things by the word of his power, which he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Beautiful. Thank you. So this is what we're able to cover. We started, you know, that Hebrews chapter one, it did not even waste time, just went straight to God to establish the fact that, hey, the purpose of me writing this letter is to tell you that Jesus is God's final word to us. Jesus is the final word of God to us. In many times in the past, he had spoken to prophets, you know, to speak to the fathers back in those days. We saw how many different ways he has done that, like sundry times, diverse manners, right? But then in these last days, the Bible says he has spoken to us clearly and finally by his son. And then we looked at all the, you know, the different ways that he's described in the scriptures here. First of all, he's described as the heir. He's appointed heir of all things. And I said, heir means the one who owns everything, right? He's the one that has the inheritance of all things. So he's called heir of all things. He's called creator because he says 
by whom also he made the worlds. And then he goes on and talks about Jesus being the brightness of his glory. And I spent time explaining this, right? Being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And I showed you that Jesus Christ was not, not just a mere man. Jesus was the exact representation of God. Um, the God who was invisible, the God who no one had seen or could ever see. Jesus brought light to that person, the person of the Father. And so when that's why Jesus could say in his earthly ministry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, um, he talked about no one has ever seen God at any time, but the Son of God who came down from heaven has revealed him. Right? That's John 1 18, I think. So God Jesus has revealed this the, the Father to us. If you want to see who God is, you look at Jesus. And um not only is he heir, creator, and you know, the full expression of God, you know, reveal of the person of God, it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. So he upholds everything by his power. By the way, we're going to talk about this today, but one very powerful revelation, one thing that you must agree with as a Christian, as a believer, is that Jesus is God. Maybe when you were saved, that was not what you heard, right? Maybe when you started in your Christian journey, you just heard that Jesus was the Son of God. But you have to understand that that designation says more about God than just the, the 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 idea, you know, Son of God. So Jesus, in every way, represents God and is God. How do I know that? Many ways. First of all, only God is Creator, but here He is called Creator. Jesus says, "By whom also He made the worlds." The worlds were created by Jesus through Jesus. And guess what? They were created for Him and by Him, which which makes Him heir makes him creator, makes him the revealer. Now look at the next part. It says, sustainer, that's upholding all things by the word of his power. So everything we see around us, everything that we call creation is sustained by the power of Jesus. So you wake up in the morning, you expect the sun to come out, right? You go back to bed, you expect... The, the the moon you know to show up or like you want you know expect new morning and night time that you can build your life on that surety that guarantee that you know morning time and evening time is going to come what else can you bet your life on you can bet your life on sea time and harvest right and let me show you this text by the way it's in genesis 8 i would like someone to read this genesis 8 22 Let's all read this. It's on the screen now. Genesis 8.22 While the earth remained, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Do, do you see this? So God steps into creation. Last week I explained to you how God created the heavens and the earth, but we know how the heavens and the earth were created. It was by the word God spoke. In, he said, let there be light, and there was light, and all things were created because God spoke. And then we saw in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word, 
right? And the word was with God and the word was God. And so the scriptures equate the word with God. In other words, you can see correctly, God created all things. And you can also accurately say God's word created all things. All right. And you'll be right because God and his word are one and the same. That's why it says the word was with God and the word was God. But now the word of God that created all things did not just create all things, but set things in motion. So what that means is that you can be assured, every single person here, that there is a seed time to plant a seed and there's a harvest time. I don't know why people have used this text to teach on very unnecessary things in the body of Christ. This is just talking about the consistency of, of creation. There is always going to be seasons of cold and seasons of heat. When you put seed into the ground, you can be sure that all the laws of, of science, you know, photosynthesis, all those things that, you know, um, help plants to create food and all that. There is, you know, a whole lot. I think somebody joined the wrong meeting. Sorry. Yeah, I think someone joined the wrong meeting. Can you put the correct link on um on Bible Marathon Group, please? Thank you. Just um repost the link again. I think someone's trying to join in. Okay. And we said summer and winter, right? And day and night shall not cease. So it's a consistent guarantee. And guess what makes it consistent? Guess what makes it possible for you to plan your life around these seasons and times? It's because God is the sustainer. You get it? So that's what we just saw. Jesus himself, the Bible says he sustains all things. So if we go back to um, verse 3, it says, Upholding all things by the word of his power. That's sustaining, keeping and making sure everything stands as it is. It says, when he has himself purged our sins. So when he says purged our sins, he's talking about the redemptive work of Christ. So he's not just creator, but he also paid the fine for our sins. And I could go on a whole talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but just realize what we're saying here. He, by himself, cleansed our sins completely, purged. That word purge really means to remove, to blot out. And so Jesus did that. And then what did he do at the end? As a boss, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who can tell me what that phrase means? What does it mean to sit down at the right hand? Sitting place of power. Authority. Explain, explain. Should I read or does anyone else want? <laughs> okay. So like when you're saying yes, you are seated at the right hand, it means that like you're seated in the place of power and authority. So if someone says that, oh, this is my right hand man, like, no, oh, this is the person that helps me to achieve everything that I want. This person that's like, can take orders on my behalf, right? So Christ is basically seated in the place of power and authority, right? So all the power and authority that God has, Christ has it right now. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people, you know, anytime I try to ask questions like this, let me teach you a style, not a style, but a process of answering questions that I think everyone should learn. 
I know it's easy to just say the answer, right? But I want you to also preempt that there are different people at different stages, different knowledge level that might not even understand why this is an issue. So when you're giving an answer, always um, try to preempt. Like most people would think, this is an example. Most people would think that when you say right hand, it means Jesus is literally standing at the right hand side of God. But instead, it really just means authority. Do you see what I did there? So it's the same thing you said, but it just helps somebody get why this is a question in the first place. Because it says, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In your mind, and if you've ever pictured this ever, you know, in the past, you probably imagined a man sitting at the right hand of one big throne. God the Father is sitting on the middle. Jesus is on the right side. You know, you've pictured all these um, Nigerian films where there's like uh, a throne. So is there a throne in heaven? Absolutely. When he says he sits at the right hand, it's talking about a place of victory and authority. That's why he says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? So it's a, it's a designation. That's why she said rightly, right hand man. That's how you say it, my right hand man, meaning he's my, um, he has delegated authority. Okay? So that's what it means when he says he sat down at the right hand. And it means he finished what he came to do. So he, after he purged our sins, now this statement is going to come back again later on um, in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. Very important idea that when Jesus cleansed our sins, guess what he did? He sat down. What does that talk about? It talks about staying, the work has finished. It means that he sat down, having purged our sins. So he he's not right now, pay attention to this. He is not right now forgiving people's sins. What Jesus is doing right now is what? Sitting in his authority, in his victory. So it is something he has done. It's not something he is still doing. To forgive sins, you must shed blood. Jesus is not shedding blood every single day. <laughs> All right. He did it once. The Bible is going to show us that. And so when he did it, finally, the Bible says he sat down. But now, like I said at the very beginning, what is the purpose of the book of Hebrews? Can someone remind me what I explained last week at the end? I was trying to say the purpose of the writing of the book. First of all, we don't know who wrote it. And on this platform, we've said there are four questions to ask about any book, right? First of all, who wrote it, especially the epistles? First is who wrote it? Sorry, I'm, I'm too fast. I'm trying to go through as much as I can. I'm not feeling too well at all. My head is aching. Uh, and so I'm trying to go too fast. So if I'm going too fast, please forgive me. Uh, I just want to make sure that we, we make progress. So second question. Yes, it was written to the Jews. Very good. Because the title of the book is what? Hebrews. And who are the Hebrews? They are the Jews, right? Um, and then Pray said it was written to strengthen the conviction of the audience. In what way? What conviction? Do you wanna do you wanna elaborate? I want you to share some thoughts. What um what kind of conviction was necessary to be strengthened? If you can speak, anyone can speak to that, by the way. 
Okay, just sorry, where I am is noisy, but basically that Jesus is in a place of higher authority than the angels, than Moses, etc. Okay, why is that necessary? Why was that necessary? Like, why do they have to think Jesus is greater than the angels? Like, is that not something we already know? Like, isn't Jesus greater than all these people? Yeah, Victoria. Um, it was to show them that all the Old Testament practices, right? Or yeah, all the Old Testament practices actually um points to Christ. Um yeah, that's what it means. Sorry, it's just a nice yeah. yeah. So I think I'll I'll accept both of your answers. Daphne is correct, you're also correct. I think where I wanted to go with this is why is there a need to prove that all the things that were said in the Old Testament were about Christ. I, I really want you to hit the nail on the head. Like all these things you're saying are correct. Where's the goal? Why is this book necessary? Okay, Toyasi, try. Um, maybe because people were still holding on to the old practices and because they were still holding on to the old practices, I had to show them that it doesn't make sense because Jesus is actually greater. So if you're still holding on to something, then there's no point. So... I guess. Good. Good. So, so persuading them that right that holding on to the law will not save them. Yes. Beautiful. So you can see how every letter ever written is for the purpose of salvation. Every epistle is either to correct a wrong teaching on salvation, the doctrine of salvation enforce or emphasize certain points in the gospel of salvation or just like pray said to raise their conviction about what they have believed so these were jewish hebrew you know hebrews who had trusted now they were beginning to trust in jesus but you know the conflict that arises when you are beginning to trust in this person who you claim to be the messiah but most of Judaism at that time does not believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so since the Messiah has not come, they have to keep practicing everything that the law commands. So imagine someone who was a Jew, lived all their life killing rams, goats, going for certain feasts, celebrating Sabbath and Passover and you know all of these things. And then finally someone says, hey, um, those things have been fulfilled because here's Jesus and he has handled all the killings of animals, bulls, and goats by purging sin by himself. Okay, so I don't need to do that. Then, you know, what of working? I have to work to obtain my salvation. So, oh, Jesus Christ has become your rest. Hebrews 4. Oh, ah, okay. So should I, um, what else should I do? Right? How do I know this is true? The law of Moses is here. Well, let me prove to you that Moses is not as great as Jesus is, right? So that's what the book of Hebrews really is. So you have to pay attention to these cues, all right? All right. So, so I should read verse 5 for us. For unto, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So let me show you what is happening here. Um, 
by the way, I'm I'm apologizing again because I know this can be distracting, but just please um pray for me. That's what I'll ask you to do. Pray for me, all right? Um so look at what he starts with. He says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He's saying, Which of the myriads of angels did God ever say at one time in history, This is my son? Why is this important? When you think about creation, um, God created, I believe God created the angels um, just before, <clears throat> sorry, um, before he created the world, right? So angels are spirit beings that were, I would say, maybe the first of God's creation before God decides to build or create the world that we are we have today. And he says, to which of the angels said he at any time, that my son. So, which of the angels was designated this title of being? <sighs> oh God, of being the son of God. So he says, which which of these? Right? Has he called that? Now look at something. Let me show you this. Where did he get this statement? I think that's the first question. He said, "Thou art my son." I think in Psalms. Beautiful. So take us there, Psalm 2. Okay, let me find. I hope you're learning something. If um, you have any questions. Sorry, my network is lagging. Maybe someone can open it. Mm, okay. Psalm, sorry, let's say Psalm 2, Psalm 8. Okay, Psalm 8 is, we're still going to get to Psalm 8 eventually. Let me, let me just open, open it here. All right. So, okay, we're not there yet. It's Psalm 2. I found it, sorry. Okay, Psalm, Psalm 2, right? 2, from verse 7. Beautiful. He says, I would, okay, I would tell of the decrees. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So, think about this. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Right? And, and so, the writer of Hebrews is using this text to say, which of the angels did God ever say this to? Why? You need to understand why he's even bringing up angels in the first place. So according to Hebrew tradition, right, the law of Moses came to them by angels. Don't ask me how, but it was believed that the law of Moses, that Moses read to them, was delivered by angels. Sorry, can someone can someone go to Second Corinthians three? Let me show that to you. Second Corinthians three, verse what? Let's read from verse, um, verse six. Okay, I'm reading from the NKJV. Sorry, if there's noise in the background. It's okay. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter accuses, but the spirit gives life. Yep. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, 
which mm-hmm. glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Yep. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Should I keep going? Keep going, yeah. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when... Okay. So what we just read is the comparison between um, the the law and the spirit. So what we are seeing is there is something that was given to them and is being compared with what was given by the spirit. So what is established here is that the law, notice, I want you to pay attention to this because this is where we are going in the Bible study. He says, I think it was verse, where were we? Verse seven. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stones, talking about the law, was glorious so that the children of Israel should could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses. So he's talking about the law written and engraven in stones. All right. But then look at Acts 7. All right. Look at Acts 7, verse 53. Can someone... Can someone read from verse 52? I want to show you and prove to you that it was it was known that the the um the law came by angels. All right. So read Acts 7 52 to 53. It's on the screen. So you can even just read from there. Anyone? Nobody is able to read. Sorry. All right, thank you. Acts 7, 52 and 53, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and they have slain them which showed before before of the coming of the just one of whom ye have now of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the um, disposition of angels and have not kept it. So, So notice, he said, you receive the law by what? The disposition of angels. It's very interesting. So he's talking about the law of Moses, and he says, you receive the law by the disposition of angels. So let me show you another one. Um, think Galatians. And we just finished Galatians, so this should still be fresh to you. Right, um, from verse 18, I'll read this one. It says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. He says, Wherefore then served the law? So he's talking about the law. I wish I had time to explain all of this, but I'm rushing through to show you some things. Wherefore then served the law? It was added because of transgression, talking about the law, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the law came temporarily so that it would curb transgression for a while till the seed, which is Christ, 
should come to whom the promise was made. Listen, and was ordained by what? Angels in the hand of a mediator. <clears throat> so the, the whole idea is the, the law was known to have been received by the angels. To, um, given by the angels, rather. So we read Acts, just for those who just joined in, we're trying to establish the fact that the Hebrew people, the Jews, understood without fail, yes, the law came by Moses, but it came through the ministry of angels to Moses and then to us. Or when I say us, I mean to the people, right? So we read um, Acts 7. I don't know if we started from... 53, let me go to 38 because there's another one that talks about it there too. It says, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which speak to him in the Mount Sinai. So, so it is the angels that gave the law to Moses. So you can imagine where the, the Hebrew people would place angels. I'm giving all this background so you understand why the writer of Hebrews has to make a defense that the Son of God is greater than the angels. Do you understand to this point? Anyone? Did I lose anyone? I just yes, understand. yes, I understand. Okay, so I'll, re I'll reiterate the point. We are in Hebrews 1, 5. And all of a sudden, it's like the writer of Hebrews just switches from talking about Jesus and says, to which of the angels... Did God say at any time, thou art my son? Like who, which of the angels did God speak like that to? And you may be wondering, like, why is he bringing up angels? You have to understand, like we said, he's writing to a, an audience that understood the law. They knew the law was very important. And they had begun to believe the gospel, that Jesus is the way. But they're struggling. They're really struggling to hold on to that because they are so used to their Jewish practices. And guess what the Jewish practices involves? The law. Who brought the law? Moses. How did Moses receive the law? The Bible says it was given by angels. We just saw that. So the writer of Hebrews skillfully says, to which of the angels did he say, be my son? Because guess what? A son is greater than the servant. And we know that angels actually have the task of service. Okay? So he says, to whom did he say at, at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And he's quoting Psalm 2, like we read. And then he also said, and again, it also says in the scriptures, I will be unto him a father and he shall be unto me a son. So he said, which of the angels did God talk to like this? Then verse 6. Welcome to everyone who just joined us. We're moving forward and... um. I hope you, you'll be able to pick up on some of the things we're saying already. So verse 6, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. So now, notice, he's trying to distinguish this son of God. First of all, he started by describing the son of God, the heir, the creator, the sustainer, the, the, the revealer of God's nature, the one who redeems. He just lists all those things. Then he compares him with angels because someone might be like, well, is Jesus really greater than the angels who gave the law? Absolutely, because only God 
God spoke only to this son, not to any angels, not, not to any of the angels, right? So now, verse 6, we come across a term, first begotten. Some translations will say firstborn. So I have a question. Can someone tell me what it means when, when we see the word firstborn here? What does firstborn actually mean? Does it mean Jesus was the first to be born of God? Does it mean God created Jesus as the firstborn? What, what are your thoughts on that? Who would like to go? By the way, this is a huge theological question because this is one of the things, if you face Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, some other cult groups, they're going to say the Bible talks about Jesus as the firstborn. So how do you defend this word firstborn when you see it in scripture here and in Colossians and other places? Mo, go ahead. I, reason I think I'm just trying. So I think Jesus Christ, yeah, he, God wanted all mankind to be righteous, right? And to come into like, for instance, the Bible tells us in Ephesians that he wants to bring us into adoption, right? So I've been brought into adoption by Jesus Christ. So we are now children of God. Jesus Christ was the first person to actually be a child of God, right? And he now brought us into that, into, into that relationship with God. So Jesus Christ, when he says the firstborn, the first child of God, then after that, everybody else. So I think that's what it is saying. Okay, so first, like first, the 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 one who kind of led the way, right? For everyone else. Led the way for everyone else to become children of God. Okay, all right. Does anyone want to add to that? I wanted to say the first that is born of God and of his spirit and not of the flesh. Hmm, born of God. So... When, when we say firstborn, it means born of God and not the flesh. Hmm. Okay, I, I don't know if I'll take that fully because, I mean, Daphne, I don't, are you the firstborn? No, you're not the firstborn. But like when we say firstborn, what normally comes to mind is the first that was born, right, of your parents. So when we see the word firstborn, the first idea that comes to your mind is first child of you know of the parents so you look at jesus being the firstborn and your automatic sense if you haven't studied this word would be jesus is the first child that was born of god but you see the word firstborn historically speaking from a jewish context has three major definitions right so the first definition for the word firstborn, pay, pay attention to this because you'll need it. It's very important. The first definition is heir. All right. Because in, in Jewish days, in Jewish tradition, even in some traditions till today, when you say firstborn, you are basically saying the one who is the, um, the heir of most of the inheritance. Right. And in the in those days, there was something called the double portion. So if a fam if a father had 12 children, um, and he says he was he was obligated to give a double portion to his first first child. All right. And so what he would do is he would split the inheritance, if he has 12 children, into 13 parts and give two to the firstborn. So this was talking about someone who was preeminent in a sense, had Air privileges. Remember um, the story of the 
the parable Jesus gave, he kind of hinted it when he talked about the 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 parable of the um the prodigal son, right? He wanted all of his property. Um, so there's always an inheritance, all right, and the firstborn is the one who gets most of that. So that's heir. The second definition of firstborn is the obvious one we all know, which is the first one born, right? So that's another definition in the same scripture. So you see the word firstborn, you have to understand it from its context. Then the third definition actually is the one that we see used of Jesus most of the time, which is the one who is preeminent over all. So Colossians chapter one says he was firstborn over all creation. So the idea is he is the owner of all things. So that's why they call him firstborn. Just the same idea of an heir who has access to the inheritance. And so you see terms used to describe Jesus as the one who owns all things, who is was given all things. God put all things under his feet. You see all those kind of terminologies talking about the fact that he is preeminent. Nothing came before him. So he's the first. So firstborn might be misleading, but you look at the context and it helps you out. So when you look at Hebrews 1.6, when he again brings his firstborn into the world, the reason you use this terminology is because now he's talking about in the human world. Like this is Jesus who has existed as the world prior to his um, um, incarnation, right? But now he is called firstborn into the world. So he's the firstborn into the world, meaning he's the one with all authority and all power and preeminence in the world. And he says, all God's angels must worship him. And I think this is very significant. He's trying to show that not only is Jesus higher than the angels, because God told only Jesus, you are my son and I'll be your father, right? He also uses the argument of angels are worshiping him. Because we know by definition, the only object of worship is God. So if angels are worshiping Jesus, what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. So he's trying to say, Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels brought the law, but Jesus is way greater. And here's why. Number one, he's greater than the angels because the scriptures teach that he said, sit at my right hand to the son. He didn't say it to anyone else, right? And then you look at this. He's worshiped. All of God's angels must worship him, okay? These are very, very powerful things that the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. And then he says about the angels, just to show you that, okay, he didn't only speak to the son. He spoke to the angels. But what did God say to the angels? He said to the angels, here, verse 7. Let's read it together. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels wings and his servants a fiery flame. So this is to show us that angels have a designation of what? Servants. They serve. Okay? They serve. They are not omnipotent, all-powerful. They are not, you know, all of those things that we would attribute to the Son. He says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fairy flame, a fiery flame, right? But about the Son, he's still comparing. He says about the Son, he said, so he's quoting the, the scriptures again. I think Deuteronomy 32 here is quoting. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
pay attention to the words. God is speaking and he says this to the son. Thy throne, O God. This is one of the places I just want to pause and reiterate the doctrine of the Trinity. For anyone who maybe still doesn't get what that is. I, I don't plan to teach it, but I just want to reaffirm that this is one of the ways you know that the doctrine of the Trinity is not is not just random. You know, uh, you cannot see a hint in the next verse about that. You see the, the Father, you see the Son, and you see the, the Spirit anointing the Son, right? Still, still appealing to this idea of the Trinity. But look here, he calls the Son, O God. Do you see that? He says, thy son, thy, thy son, sorry, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. He's calling this son a king by saying your scepter and saying your kingdom. So he's the king of that kingdom. That's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff, guys. So Jesus is God. That's, that's established. Established here because God himself called Jesus God. Um, and then verse 9. I also want to read verse 9. Just uh, read it out boldly. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you rather than your companions with the oil of joy. I love this. And this is um, HCSB. Look at the King James. Sorry, this is the King James. It says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, oh dear Lord, help me. It says, Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Oof. So he says, You've loved righteousness, you've hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God. So he's talking to him and he says, God, the Father, even thy God has anointed thee with the oil of gladness. So talking about the Trinity, like I said, you see it right there. Look at verse 10. Can someone help me read this, please? My head, anytime I speak, I feel a very strong headache. And I don't know why I'm still talking. Can someone read verse 10 for me, please? And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Who is this person that is being spoken to or spoken of? Who is this thou, Lord? Who is that? Jesus, right? Oh, there's a question here. I, I missed the question. But yeah, when he says, thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast thou laid the foundation of the earth. The author of Hebrews is making a very, very, very powerful statement that Jesus was at the creation and that everything at the works of his hands. So, um, Chris says, P.E., why, why go from only begotten to first begotten if it's just talking about him being the owner of all things? Okay, so um, let's see. First begotten. I think you're looking at verse 5 and 6, right? Just comparing or confirming what you mean. So, for unto him... Okay, yeah. So, it says, For unto which of the angels said, said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I, be, have I begotten thee. 
that's talking about the fact that um we we say the son of god because we mean that he came from god that's still the very point that even from creation god spoke the word the word came <laughs> the word came from god all right so that's what we saw at the beginning but then prophetically this guy had to be born right he had to be born so that my son this day have i begotten thee that's prophecy he said and again i will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son that happened in history that was not always the case so jesus became the son of god and was proved to be the son of god by resurrection from the dead proved to be the son of god by his birth but he was always there from the very beginning not with the nomenclature son of god all right but when he came into the world that's why he says first begotten because that's how we would understand this analogy of sonship he was born so he was the first to be born in a sense so not first created first born meaning he's the first that owns all things has all authority and all power so that's the correlation between verse 5 and verse 6 all right i don't know if that clarifies that for you he's the first one is quoting the scriptures in the psalms that my son this day have i begotten thee and I'll be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. That's something that will happen and happen in history. But then he, he quotes another text where um all the angels worship him. Who are they worshiping him? Who are they worshiping? The firstborn of God. And who is the firstborn of God? We just saw that. So there's that correlation. Um, it doesn't mean created by God, because clearly Jesus is designated the role of creator, right? I I will take more time to explain this um next time we meet if that's fine, um, okay okay thank you so um we are now here talking about Jesus still being the creator of everything in the beginning has thou laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands talking about the sun as well. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be chained. But thou art the same. Talking about the immutability of God, that this same Son of God, by the way, if you read all these things and they say it's for Jesus, you cannot live with the conclusion that he is not God. He's talking about an unchanging person, the one who created all things. He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are his works. Um, everything perishes, he does not. That is God right there. Um, and then but he goes back and says, For to which of the angels did he say at any time, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool? And that's also a prophecy in the book of Psalms, talking about Jesus, that he will be at the right hand of the Father. And God will finish the destruction of his enemies, in quotes. You know, and so he will sit and wait to see that that happen. He says, sit on my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Right? So he's still comparing the Son of God with the angels to say, hey, they're not in the same class. So if you want to summarize chapter 1 of Hebrews, it is the proving and the... um 
revealing of the Son of God as being greater than the angels and by extension, greater than the law. We're still going to see that specifically, but greater than the angels. Angels are servants serving God and doing his work. The Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, is not like an angel, as some people would teach. Some some doctrines or some movements teach that Jesus is, you know, the brother of Lucifer, like he's a spirit brother to Lucifer. That's one of the teachings some people have. But that Jesus is one of the first creations of God. In fact, some Christians sadly hold to that position that God created Jesus first and then Jesus now created everything. But that contradicts a lot of scriptures where you see that Jesus himself had no beginning. He is eternal. But the definition of eternal means he has no beginning to that life. Now, we have received eternal life. We are not eternal. We've received eternal life. But the only one who truly has eternity or was always in existence before the beginning is the word of God, which is God. And the word of God was made flesh. And that flesh is Jesus we know today, right? I'm saying a lot, but I hope you get the point. Um, Jesus is undisputedly God. And there are so many scriptures to prove that. But you see, he's comparing the deity of Christ, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, with angels. And he says, angels, are they not just ministering spirits? Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent for to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Who are the heirs of salvation? Us. That's us. Amen. So he's saying, don't mix them up. Jesus is Lord. He's worshipped. The angels serve and worship him. The angels also serve and worship. No, not worship. They worship God, but they serve us who are the heirs of salvation. Just the same way Jesus is the heir of all things. We are heirs of salvation. And he's talking about the redemption that is coming for us fully, the full redemption, right? Where we have our new bodies. We are living with God forever. Um. So the angels are sent to minister to us. And I hope you guys realize that every passing day, even if you're not sensitive enough to know, um, the, the, the angels are around, they are work. Um, first of all, you have to understand that angels are, when he says they are ministering spirits, that already tells you they're not human. Can they take on human form? Absolutely. We see that in the scriptures. We even see that in Hebrews 13, where it says that, um, you should be quick to entertain strangers, knowing that many of you, by doing this, have entertained strangers, um, angels unaware. So it's possible. I've had that. I don't know if I've ever shared this story here with you, where I encountered what I believe was an angel, and uh, it was so remarkable that, um, you know, it's still it's still very difficult for me to be sure what happened. I've shared. I don't know if I've shared it on this platform before. But many of us have actually even possibly encountered angels that we didn't know. Like, um, and those are the rare occasions where they take on a human form, right? But angels primarily are ministry spirits. As I'm here in this room here, angels can be here. And I may not know, and sometimes God allows me to perceive them, right? Some of you too. Biblically speaking, we see how Balaam was going to do this evil act. And it was when God decided to open his eyes that he saw the angel with a flaming sword right in front of him. Or 
you know, with Elisha and the, the servant, and that guy was afraid. He said, oh, these people are coming against us. And God opened his eyes to see. He prayed a prayer and said, let my servant see. And he saw the host of angels. So maybe we'll talk more about angels next week, but there's such a beautiful topic to discuss. You have to realize angels are, they're called spirits, ministry spirits. Um, God created them. They're not being created. They don't reproduce. So whatever you know as angels, they are still the same angels. Um, meaning there's a fixed number, I believe. But that fixed number is innumerable. The Bible talks about innumerable company of angels. There are so many hosts of heaven. That's what they're described as. Um, and they're not all just winged creatures because that's all we think about angels. But the Bible talks about different kinds of creatures in heaven. Um, there's cherubim, there's seraphim. They all have different looks. You know, we all just have this imagery of flapping wings. But oh, they, and the Bible talks about angels um, they excel in strength, so they are very powerful. They are big. Um, man, there's so much much I can share, but maybe when I feel a lot better next week, I will do a recap of what we just read. I will move to uh, Hebrews 2, all right? Um, but yeah, I think we could stop right now. Are there any questions? We're done with Hebrews 1, by the way. We just saw the emphasis about Jesus Christ being the Son of God and Him being greater than the angels. All right. So any questions on what I've discussed today? By the way, I want to say a shout out to all those who joined us for the first time today. Um, I think I see uh, Pierre Loretta. Hi, good to have you around. I just hope this is not a bad day you joined us because I have a very, very severe cold and headache and everything that could go wrong. But I hope you still had a great time. Um, for everyone who comes regularly, thank you for showing up today. I hope you're having a great week. Dimfna, it's good to see you. Good to see Jessica. Um, Anu. Hi, I see you on mutual, on mutual yourself. Yes, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Good evening, awesome. everyone. Welcome, welcome. So just to yeah. announce, we meet here every Sorry Friday. Sorry about your health. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please just pray for me. I think I've just been really, really stressed a whole lot. Um, Dimfna, I'll come for like health advice very soon. Um, but yeah, we meet every Friday around this time, just an hour from uh four to five EST, and and then we are also we also meet on Sundays where we study the Bible, um, you know, different topics. This month we're dealing with a very interesting topic. I'll just tell you now, it's on the subject of church hurt and how to navigate that. Um, so make sure you come around. We're going to discuss a lot of things. It's going to be very, very real. We discuss things that we hardly discuss in church just because um, those conversations need to be had. I want to see what the Word of God actually says about it. So that's on Sundays. Um, and we have a WhatsApp group that you can be a part of to get all these updates. All right. So any questions for me before I wrap this up? Everything is clear. Okay, okay, Mo has a question real quick and then we'll wrap up. There's this thing, I think we read it today that to which of his sons you say, sit at my right hand, I shall make your enemies thy footstool. What was he talking about when he said, I shall make your enemies thy footstool? Yeah, so he's talking about victory. Um, the victory that Jesus will win by the sacrifice that he offers. Um, 
It's a prophetic psalm, by the way. So the original reference, um, let me pull it up on the screen. Um, is it showing someone? Okay, so it's a psalm. Remember, prophecy in scripture sometimes is mixed up in like someone's natural life. They're just saying, you just read the psalms and you don't realize that it's prophetic in nature. So he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, say that thou art my right hand unto I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thy enemies. He's just talking about the fact that so much will happen. Um, and it will be by the empowering, the, the, the power of the spirit. In fact, talking about how the people of God will be willing in the day of God's power. That's what he says in verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauty of holiness. So there's so much here that it will take time to, to teach, but um, it says that people will be willing, sorry, um, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So um, it's just, he's just talking about the victory that um, God will win and rot for his Christ, his son. In bringing an end to his enemies. It's just that collaborative, I'm going to deal with the enemies of God um, and they're not going to win against you, basically. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Someone said there's a question on YouTube. I don't have access to that right now, but if someone can grab it and throw it into the chat somehow, let me see if I can um, find One more. it. When it says enemies of God, are unbelievers enemies of God too? Hmm. This context, so this context, because it's prophecy, I don't think it is speaking directly to people. I don't think it's speaking directly to people. Um, when it says, um, so sit on my right hand, meaning rest from your work. I'm going to bring an end. You've done your part. All right. You've done your part. And, oh, okay, the question is, what's the difference between only begotten and first, first begotten? Um, I'm going to answer that real quick. Short answer, but I'll explain it next week. Let me answer this question. Sit at my right hand. We already discussed that, right? That's where Jesus is seated, meaning he has finished the work he came to do. After he purged sins, he sat down at the right hand. So this prophecy is talking about God speaking to his son and saying, now you have done the work rest until everything comes to an end and that victory is brought to its final um final climax or conclusion so that's the way i want to in you know interpret that um if there's anything deeper i'll probably have to check from commentaries and see what they think but i don't think there's anything deeper it's just a prophecy that as david said it it would make sense to him as you know, contemporary things happening. He was always in war and there were things happening, right? Um, and then the um, the context of prophecy is what I just described. Jesus would win the war. And then finally, before the final return of Christ and everything, that's all God is going to rot when Jesus will appear at the end and his enemies will be put put uh, put to shame. And I believe that involves the powers of hell. And I think it could also include people who um, 
aligned with that that side but i don't think it's specific to to humans in that sense okay so let me make the distinction between first begotten and only begotten very quickly when we say first begotten you have to look at the context i cannot give you the difference with the word with um of the um, between the words without its context so there are times in scripture you see first begotten from the dead then I can give you the meaning of that. That's obvious. It means he was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And that's the testimony of all of us. But he was the first, the prototype, the first person to experience resurrection from the dead, never to die again. That's first begotten. Now, only begotten is the status he held when he was the first one to be designated son of God. Now, there are many sons, but he was the only son of God that was, you know, at born at the time, all right? Because God, I mean, naturally speaking, God has no sons, okay? But because of redemption's plan, God, the word, becomes flesh. And so he's designated the son of God, meaning he had no earthly father. He was born directly of the seed, loosely, of God himself. So he's called son of God. Mary was the vessel, but there was no man. So he's called son of God, not son of Joseph or whatever directly. So he's the son of God. So in that sense, he's the only begotten of God. But first begotten has to be taken in its context, like I said. So if it's first begotten from the dead, he is the first to rise from the dead. If it's the first begotten like we read today, it's the one who was the first to experience that state of sonship um, that we described. So Context is everything. The difference is not so significant without its context. So um, I hope that helps. Next week, I'm going to delve into this more. I think I'll show you multiple scriptures. Take you to Colossians as well. All right. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to stop here right now. Already out of time. Thank you so much. And I need to, to get some rest. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Um, use it for your glory in spite of all the challenges use it for your glory let it instruct let it edify let your name be glorified in jesus name amen amen thank you everyone that was an awesome meal thank you for joining us as we studied the word of god if you would like to join the actual world dinner sessions live on fridays you can visit the link page. It's always on Fridays, 9pm West African time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at bmg.global and see you when next it's dinner time.